Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December. But this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash nine lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain blocks of the 24 hours live and that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear uh robin is hosting for the entire 24 hours and there'll be helen chesky and beck hill and josie long and chris hadfield and brian cox and helen sharman and sharon d clark and mark watson and tanita tickram and sophie ellis bexter and jim al and chris jackson and loads 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 more so go to cosmicchannels.com slash nine lessons to check that out and now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to another live Sunday Science Q&A. Uh, as usual, before we get on, there's it's going to be a certain amount of mathematics, certainly certain amount of, of physics is certainly going to be... I, I'm slightly worried. I think this is the first time in five weeks where, as far as I know, there's no questions about whale poo, but I would imagine that one of you out there will manage to uh, either tweet us at Cosmic Shambles or put something in the live chat about whale poo because that seems of all the many ideas, all the many fascinating ideas that Helen Chersky has, has dealt with over her career unfortunately it appears there is a level of coprophagia which uh seems to be within uh many of the community that watch the sunday science live q a um a few things to tell you which is uh, the new episode of an, an uncanny hour is up went up on friday and it is about this film here that's a novelization of david cronenberg's the brood uh the brood is genuinely one of uh, even by david cronenberg standards it's a, it's an incredibly unsettling film for about 1980 79 80 um and we did a discussion with uh, kayla janice and charlie higgs and and, uh, and uh, Cindy Hines, who played Candy, the child in The Brood. Uh, so uh, that's up at CosmicShambles.com. Also, uh, this book, which is another fascinating, uh, The Great Pretender uh, by Susanna Cahalan, who also wrote a book called Brain on Fire, which has been turned into a, a movie for um, Netflix as well. Um, very interesting book uh, about, this is one of the tragedies and why I'm glad that we've got these kind of proper scientists on. I'm sorry, psychologists, but I have been incredibly let down that every time I buy a book, 
book about the history of psychology goes. And of course, it turns out that many of these experiments weren't really done or were a lie or the statistics were changed. And this is an, a really fascinating book about one of the kind of major ideas of the, the second half of the 20th century in, in psychology, one of the big experiments and actually the kind of truth behind it. So that's up on Book Shambles at the moment, December the 12th. Uh, we're doing our 24 hour science show. Obviously, that will continue to December the 13th. That is uh, Sonic Midday then. Uh, go and find out more about that. We've announced now something like about 120 guests. Uh, we have an enormous number of people. Chris Hadfield, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Jocelyn Belbonnell, Brian Cox. Uh, oh, some really great as well. Uh, Australian guests and American guests as well. So for those of you who want to go to sleep, if you're watching us in the UK, the Australians, we will have lots of wonderful people, including obviously Dr. Carl. And uh, then also there is no Sunday show for the next couple of weeks because of that 24-hour show, because it turns out that trying to connect 120 guests uh it has there well there are kind of uh, technical uh, and statistical issues uh, dealing with that uh, but go to cosmicshamus.com you find out all the stuff that we're doing at the moment and we're generally doing three to four shows a week and uh, anyway so enjoy having your sunday off next week this week as i said um we are joined by uh well professor john butterworth particle physicist based uh was based at uh, cern uh and also based at ucl joined by dr smith dr becky smithhurst who's i ate some doritos before we started and there's still a small Dorito just in the corner of my tooth there, which has given me a certain level of savoury-based uh, speech impediment, just in case you're wondering. Anyway, Dr. Uh, Becky Smethurst, astrophysicist at the University of Oxford. And uh, we're also joined by Helen Chersky, as usual. Um, Helen, how are you? What's your show and tell? How are you? What's your show and tell? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I was saying before it's all started, I'm actually, it's a, it's a more relaxing weekend than I've had in a very, very long time. I haven't got to do any work. Um, so my show and tell, it's a little bit off to the side, but I think it sets the context really well. So it's from this book here, which is a photographic book of the Thames, which I love because the, the photos go back to the beginning of photography. And I've picked up one of these photos and the reason for it, so this photo was taken, there's, there's actually two, this one was in the 1850s. And a lot of the physics that we sort of take for granted today that we teach was discovered in this era, era and basically it hasn't changed. So I just wanted, you know, we talk about these ideas and they, they, they feel very modern. So this picture that we see, so what that is, is a load of horses and carts going over London. Can you see that at all? A load of horses yeah. and carts going yeah. over London Bridge. And there's a, it's basically a traffic jam in 1850. And um, this, this was what London was like. There's one more. I'll, I'll show you. It's slightly easier to see. This was what the Thames looked like, directly opposite the Houses of Parliament. So there's this. There's basically directly opposite. The, you know, this massive grand building. There's all these boatyards and um, bits of boat. I mean, the whole thing was very boat focused. But the reason I'm showing it is just that um, it really made me think about those early theories in physics. So around this time, 1850s and 1860s, you've got the kinetic theory of gases being discovered, which is kind of the ideal gas law. It tells you about pressure and volume and temperature. The second law of thermodynamics was in around then. The discovery, the idea of black body radiation um, and the concept of entropy. So these really sort of modern ideas. And we basically now use the mathematics that they came up with and it's unchanged. You know, the, the symbols we use might have changed and the way it's expressed might have changed. But fundamentally, the physics hasn't changed at all. And I was just thinking it's really weird because when you teach them now, when I teach them now, they're such modern things in a way, like they, they fit in in this modern world. And yet, you know, they were they, the, to, to do the science behind them. All of that was done with all these horses and carts and, you know, this completely different world. And there was horse poo everywhere and the great stink in the Thames and all of this. And yet these amazingly modern ideas that haven't changed mathematically came out. And I was just thinking that's a really nice 
mixture of things. So that's my show. show and I think it's a, such an important thing where we try and make connections. I mean, because that is such, you know, recent past. And it's like those lovely things that Sarah Parkak, who's been on this before, you know, uh, who who uh, is an archaeologist and those bits that when, for instance, she will find when you see the indentations in ancient temples for where people have been playing the equivalent of jacks because they were bored. Because 3,000 years ago, you could be as bo- bored in the same way that we are bored now and might turn towards playing on our phone. And, you know, and the love poetry that she finds out, which is as bawdy and str- you know, all of these things, all of these bits which go, actually, human time is a very short amount of time. And uh, and the, the idea as well that what makes us who we are and our moods and our emotions and all of those things are not something which is a 21st century accoutrement, which gives us a, a level of sophistication, even if the, the light and the equipment and the technology we have around us may change the uh, uh, the landscape. Um, now, Becky, you have written a book, uh, your latest book. It's, it's your, is it your first book, Becky, in fact? It's my first book, yeah. Yeah, and it is Space, Ten Things You mm-hmm. Should Know. Here it is. Uh, so it's before very shiny. we do your show and tell, we should have, the, well, let's show and tell that. Um, <laughs> what, now, now, because it's just out, so I presume you're beginning to get feedback. What are the things that you've noticed? Is, is there an idea within that? In that ten, what's the mm. one you've noticed has made the most impression? Um... I think that so the not to give it away, but the end of the book <laughs> talks about all the things we don't know, and I think that really resonates with a lot of people. Like the fact that there is so much more that we don't know than we do know left in science and all things really, um, especially because like I think how we're taught science in school is very like here are all the facts and here's the things we know, and it feels like we've always known them in that way rather than learning sort of the fifty years it took to figure this out or something, right? So. Just talking at the end there about like all the things we still don't know and and the, the, all the idea of these unknown knowns and known unknowns and all that kind of stuff like it, I love that kind of stuff and I think it resonated really well with people as well. So people like that one, and also the aliens chapter because everyone loves aliens, right? So, <laughs> but I, th- I think you're right. I think it's a really important thing, which is that I mean, it's an argument which one day we'll do a whole show just on this, which is in terms of the history of science, and I know there was a big debate about 10 years ago where many people in education said that we need to place the history in there this is not enough of this mm. in the curriculum which gives you a sense both of failure and also of the the huge amount of knowledge which which we don't what we don't know and and i i think that's a very important part of the story where yeah, but also at, like the process and the time it's been so highlighted this year when people are like you know what about this in terms of the pandemic and we're like well we don't know yet and it's going to take us yeah, like it's incredible they've managed to get a vaccine in nine months. Like that's so accelerated the sort of time process that it takes for science to figure stuff out. And I think if we taught that in schools more, yeah, it might well, not. It's become it really not. it's become really apparent this year because social media means that the question you, you get enough you share enough information to ask the question really mm. quickly. So then people are like, Well, where's the answer? And I think in the past, no one talked about it until there was an answer. Yeah. And now, like, there's questions everywhere and everyone's asking questions and there's a little bit of information. So that gets shared really quickly. And so I think there's also um, probably more impatience from the public about why don't we know this yet? Because they can see the question. And in the past, perhaps they couldn't see the question. Like, no one talked about things they hadn't discovered yet. So it wasn't. So they didn't know yeah. it already happened. And I feel there's a shift there, which is probably making scientists look slow, but also hopefully making us look careful. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. What is your show? Uh, my show and tell is something that's been seen in the background of my videos, and everyone's always like, "What is that? It looks so cool." Um, this is an Apollo Eleven flight pan. 
So we bought this a couple of years ago. It was like one of these Kickstarter things where you had to give a lot of, you know, a bit of money to sort of get it off the ground. But essentially it's a binder and you can flick through it and literally it's got all of the sort of steps at which point, like, you know, uh, it tells you sort of what the prediction in terms of fuel would be on the flight plan. Like if it was less than this amount, they should do this. And then it's got all the, essentially like the script as well. Like as you hear the astronauts like back to NASA and everything like that, it's such a fun read, honestly. It's so, so cool. And it's such a cool thing to have as well. Even like rest period, eat period, like everything like that, like change CO2 filter and like every single point, it's got like T minus certain amount before the launch and then T plus whatever and everything. And you can you can see like the landing and and everything. It's just It's just so cool to see how meticulously like planned it was. Um, and also it links back to what Helen was saying. Like it, the maths hasn't changed, right? The, the the maths they used to get to the moon was, you know, Newton's maths from what, the 1600s. So it's the exact same stuff. And I just, I never get bored of looking at it. So I thought I'd show you today. I presume you heard Kevin Fong's, you show, heard Kevin the, Fong's show that was on the World Service, 30 Minutes to the Moon. Yes, I did. That was such a good show, wasn't it? Oh. Because if, if people out there, if you haven't heard it, I'm sure it's still available. It's won many awards and it's deserved. And it's basically anyone who is involved in the uh, Apollo 11 mission is interviewed. Every person who is involved in building the lunar module, you know, from New Jersey to Dallas, across the world. Uh, and it's 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 a it's a fantastic uh, interview. And uh, and it's filled with because Kevin knows so much. You know, the, one of the things that he learned very early, if you're ever going to interview anyone who's been to the moon, never ask them how it felt. Uh, they have no interest in that question. But if you have an interesting question involving a specific transistor, eventually you'll find out how they felt as well. But start from that perspective. Um, John, it's lovely, it's lovely to have you here, you here as, well. as well. Your book is now uh, out in paperback, I, I believe, your most uh, recent book. Yeah. Um, Map of the Invisible. Um, what is your show and tell? If you have, do you want to show us the book as well? Uh, I don't have the book here. I'm sorry. Oh, it's no, it's all right. The book, the thing you need to know about the book is that the guy who drew the maps, drew all the stuff for his dark materials, which I didn't know at the time. But this guy, Chris Wormel, who does all the, all the for the for the, the Book of Dust stuff, the, Philip, the new Philip Pullman ones, all the little etchings in there are by the guy who did my physics maps in my book. <laughs> does that worry you at all that i mean the, i mean it's, it's really cool it's, it's really cool but the fact that the because a lot his dark materials has a lot of physics-y like things in it right that this conceptual world of physics yeah. is also illustrating the real world of physics yeah there's a whole bit set in the clarendon labs in the dark matter lab there, there which isn't where i did my defil so yes it's fantastic <laughs> anyway my show and tell though is not so egotistical as being my book it's just a guitar and it's really a trailer for the thing I'm doing for your big 24-hour, 48-hour, 96-hour, whatever. It's going to continue to expand, yes. That will happen. (laughs) My recording's already overrun by two minutes, I'm sorry. But this, I I don't know if you're going to be able to hear this. I'm not going to play it, but I'm going to do is... Right, can you hear? Yeah. I'm playing the harmonics, and if I'm doing it right, you might just be able to hear beats, which is where two notes are very close together... And they start in phase and they add up and then they drift out of phase and they cancel each other out. So you get a kind of up and down in the noise, in the level of noise, okay? I'm not sure it really comes over on the mic, but that'll do for that. Anyway, in my segment of your thing, um, your long thing, I'm going to connect the, the way beats are formed with the uncertainty principle. I'm going to show how it com- how there's a technique called Fourier analysis, which allows you to locate particles if you've got a lot of frequencies 
and locate a frequency, but then you throw away all the position information, all the location. So that's kind of a trailer. So it's a bit of a cheat as a show and tell. I mean, show and tell, it's a guitar, all right? Brilliant. Um, what but, a great meeting of the two cultures that was. Science, it's never been better than that. The uh, hopefully you're doing that in the first 12 hours because then I will understand what you're saying. Frankly, anyone who's doing a science lecture between midnight and midday the next day when I'll have been up for a uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. That comprehension will not be in, in my mind. I want to ask you, by the way, but we get to sorry, John. So I'm just saying, I'm hoping you sandwich it between some very good comedy and some music, otherwise, it's going to get a bit heavy. I think I might have slipped into lecture mode at some point, but at least it's only 10 minutes. I think we put you down as a musical act, technically, so that's going to be very interesting. Whatever, however little you play, Stuart Lee will consider it to be a moment of free jazz, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, John, let's start off with a question for you, uh, which is, uh, you did a poll about which of the three ideas of physics uh, um, for nine lessons and uh, nine lessons, 24 hours, uh, yeah. Fury Analysis one. So, uh, can you give the... Um, so what are the, the other two that you decided not, not at all, have not been voted for? Can yeah. you tell us what was voted off that 24-hour? All right. Well, all, all of them were, were about a connection between some fairly basic maths, actually similar to what we've just been discussing, how the math stays the same. So some fairly basic maths, at least not cutting-edge maths, and some cool physics ideas. So one of them was Fourier analysis and... Um, the uncertainty principle, which I'm not going to talk about anymore now because that would spoil the thing coming up. The other two were, one was about non-commutative algebra and um, and antimatter, which is, is very cool, but probably a bit longer than we need here. But non-commutative algebra was, is about when you have like A times B doesn't equal B times A. So like for numbers, it really does. But for um, some, there are forms of mathematics, matrix mechanics, for instance, where it doesn't. Where, where B times A doesn't have to equal A times B. And the, that turned out that when Paul Dirac was trying to work out how to bring quantum mechanics and special relativity together, he, he wanted, it turned out he needed non-commutative maths because he was trying to make um, it's, it's kind of things like A plus B squared and he needed the A times B in the middle and the B times A in the middle to cancel out. It's, I'm not going to do it now, I can. But... The really cool thing is he said, this is nonsense, it doesn't work. I mean, he knew what he was doing, so he probably didn't say that. But it sounds very counterintuitive that you would need a situation where B times A doesn't equal A times B. But he, the maths physics already existed. Someone had already worked out the matrix mechanics that he needed. He put it in there, and it, turned, it meant his particles couldn't be single particles. They had to have four options. They couldn't just be a simple number anymore, obviously, because then with numbers, B times A does equal A times B. So there had to be a little four-component thing called a spinner. And that four components, two of them are when the, when the particle has got angular momentum, so spin, electrons have spin up and down. Without that, the periodic table wouldn't work. So he explained that because we knew about that, and he, he provided a mathematical explanation for that. And the other doubling of it, that it's four, not just two, says there must be antiparticles. And isn't that, and isn't that just stunning that you, you put this arbitrary bit of maths in there you're trying to bring together quantum mechanics and special relativity. You use this weird bit of mass and you predict antimatter. And a few years later, they found the first antiparticle. So he was right. And that, so that's one of the other. That's what you missed by not voting for that on the poll. Okay. 
<laughs> that's what I love is I, I always, always I, know we, I know we talked about it before but that thing where when physicists just say well the maths works so it must exist we just haven't found it yet I always enjoy those kind of it moments really irritates I'm doing a lot of lectures obviously by zoom at UCL now and things and it really irritates some of the students because physicists treat maths just like a toolbox they're just going there like, oh yeah I use matrices for this but can you prove that does that actually I don't, well, it works it's Fine, you know, you know, we're not mathematicians here, we're, so we use quite sophisticated maths, but we're really not very rigorous with it. We just kind of throw it in there till it works, and this is a very good example of that. That's wonderful. Now, uh, let's go straight on to galaxy collisions, uh, Becky. This is from Nina, and she would like to know, if the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy are moving towards each other, what happens when they meet? Can they actually collide? Do they have what she calls hard edges? Mm, hard edges, probably not. No, in the same way that sort of like the Earth's atmosphere doesn't have a hard edge, it's sort of a gradient sort of out into space. The same way is true of a galaxy, right? You, you don't really have a hard edge. You probably have a, a last star, but there's all sorts of like little satellites orbiting galaxies as well. Are they technically part of a galaxy? That kind of thing. Like we have the Triangulum Galaxy, if you've ever been to the Southern Hemisphere. But when Andromeda and the Milky Way collide... It's really difficult to say because the one thing that physicists don't have is a definition of what a galaxy actually is. Like there's no agreement on how you actually define a galaxy. It's sort of in, in our heads, it's sort of like, well, it's a collection of stars and gas and dust that's gravitationally bound together. But that could be a star cluster as well, right? So it's an odd one that there isn't really a definition of a galaxy. So they are going to collide in the sense that they will interact due to their gravity and then they will become one galaxy at the end. But there'll be no collisions between two stars, for example, or at least the probability is incredibly, incredibly small that that would happen, uh, just because, you know, space is mind-bogglingly mind big, or whatever the quote is from Hitchhiker's Guide. I can never remember it off the cuff. Uh, so there'll be no collisions between stars, but there'll be collisions between gas and, and the dust and everything like that that sort of permeates space more. And you'll get sort of these big, long tails streaming out as well that are sort of, torn off when you get this interaction due to gravity they'll probably have like a little flyby first of all uh, and they'll get torn apart and all their shape uh, ruined and eventually what i like to think of it is is like they're going to slosh together eventually right is how i like to think of it uh, and it'll ruin all the shape and they will become one galaxy but there'll be no true head-on collision of an edge it'll be much more of a sort of gradual gradient kind of thing as they slosh so that's interesting when you're talking about the definition of galaxies. Mm. So, so do is there the possibility of things that we something being between galaxies, as as in a solid object? Would you you know that that, that if if we are saying that, I, I suppose in the same way that you know with uh, you know certainly even with our solar system, it's not like there's a boundary and then you go it's out. You know, as Voyager kind of drifted out, it it doesn't go over the border. So it. Is that part of the problem with the definition that you end up with this kind of interim period? Massively, yeah. because I mean, you have the visible part of the galaxy first of all with all the stars. Then you have what we call the dark matter halo around the outside as well, and then we just sort of call the space between galaxies the intergalactic medium. But as you say, like, is it really a defining line between one and the other? Because the intergalactic medium will just be very, very under dense gas, essentially is what it'll be, it'll be just hydrogen atoms just knocking around, right? So at what point do you go from IGM, intergalactic medium, to hydrogen gas in galaxy that could be used to make stars in there? And it's, it's a bit of a difficult one because if we think about when we simulate the universe and what's going on, we'll probably start with just sort of a soup of dark matter and sort of hydrogen gas 
all together and it starts to clump and where it's densest a galaxy will form but it's all interconnected by these sort of uh, filaments almost like a little 3d spider web almost like a, a sponge i guess you could say and so there isn't really that hard edge to go from you know one thing to the other but they are all connected by this sort of very under dense gas that actually will get fed into a galaxy as well so it's nice to think actually we are all interconnected with other galaxies somehow there is probably a little path you could take through the maze of the the sponge of the universe that's made that's fascinating thank you the um helen smoke detectors detectors um, why can't a smoke detector tell the, this actually might be the setup to a joke I'm not entirely sure why can't a smoke detector tell the difference between burnt toast and the whole house going up in flames uh, well the simple, answer, simple is, answer is they're really sensitive and what they want to do is detect stuff before your whole before your burnt toast has turned into your house going up mm -hmm. in flames um, there are different types of fire there are different types of fire alarm which you get some that detect smoke and some that detect heat and most of the ones that we have um, around our houses detect smoke uh, because it's easier to detect, basically. It gets in the way with things a bit more. The more there are more expensive ones that detect heat that could tell the difference between your toast and your um, setting a house on fire. And I know this because I set, um, when I was doing my PhD in Cambridge and I had, it was November the 5th, there's a small, small story here. I was November the 5th, I was do, I was setting up a demo for someone. I had some real gunpowder. I had a little thing with all those old film canisters, gunpowder down it, and it, it sat inside a model of the Houses of Parliament. And when the gunpowder went pop, it blew the Houses of Parliament up. And it was a little model. And um, I had forgotten to turn the smoke detector from the one that detects the smoke to the one that detects the heat. And someone called me on my phone and the thing went pop. And I'd put too much gunpowder in there and gunpowder smoke went billowing everywhere because it's really inefficient. And it set the fire alarms off for the whole of the Cavendish. So a thousand people came outside, had to come and stand outside in the cold. It was December. It was going dark. It was around 4 p.m. And I remember seeing the fire engines coming down the road towards my laboratory. And the firemen got out and they were like, well, what's going on? And the ways parted. I was standing at the end of it. Mm. And I had to take these firemen in all their like clobber into my lab and there was this little model saying houses of parliament and a pot that said gunpowder <laughs> and and then they let everyone back in the building so <laughs> so the message is if you if you have a thing that you are deliberately setting on fire because it's going to be very small you need a fire detector that detects heat and not smoke because otherwise you're getting a lot of trouble and that is why now you're banned from doing that and are only allowed to experiments with limes and blueberries exactly. as regular uh, viewers will know um this is uh right there this is a fun one for you john uh this is from zach and zach would like to know what is the difference between dark energy and dark matter um, apart from that at least one appears to have almost no evidence for it whatsoever and according to Carlos Frank comes from hell <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're, I mean Becky could probably do this one just as much as me actually but they're, they're, they're both labels for stuff we don't understand and I would say we understand dark matter in some ways better than dark energy but in other ways not actually so dark energy is a label for the fact that the expansion rate of the universe is increasing and something has to be driving that and we call that dark energy so now, that actually can be accommodated in general relativity, so you don't actually need any really new physics for that. You're just adding a cosmological constant, which Einstein knew about at some level. So it may be that that's what it is. It still leaves the question as to why I'm open, but nevertheless. So dark energy is a label for we don't understand why the universe is growing, increasing in its rate of expansion. Dark matter is, is the label we put on we don't know 
why, well, actually the simplest one is why galaxies don't fall apart because they're spinning so fast that if there isn't more mass in the galaxy to provide more gravitational force, then they would fall apart. There's other evidence also for dark matter being there. Um, as Becky mentioned, you need it in the simulations of the, of the cosmology to make cosmology look anything like the universe does look as well. But, we, so it's fair, there's a lot of evidence that something there. There's, I mean, it's absolutely certain there's something we don't understand there, and it's very likely that it's something like dark matter. Um, and we particle physicists don't have a particle to go with it. So every, I mean, the, the, we, the standard model has a bunch of particles in it, and none of them meet the, fit the description of dark matter. None of them can actually play that role. There are ones like neutrinos which could contribute to it, but they travel too fast, they're too light. So you need something a bit like a neutrino and the only heavier is the favorite solution, but there is plenty of others now as well might be out there. But that's so the, the dark bit is just the label for dark, meaning we don't really know what that is. Um, and uh, one of them is the energy that drives the expansion of the universe. The other one is the mass that keeps the galaxies together, basically. Would you have given them different because, names? I mean, it's something that we've dealt with on, on Monkey Age loads of times, Monkey Age loads of times, which is for a lot of people who are not scientists, uh, especially not physicists, the dark matter, dark energy confusion happens yeah. all the time. Lisa Randall actually is the first person I saw say this, and I agree with her completely. We should have called dark matter transparent matter, because if it was dark, we'd see it, right? We'd see it obscuring <laughs> the stars. We don't. The point is, it's transparent. It doesn't interact with light at all. So we should have called that transparent matter anyway, just because it's wrong. And then dark energy, I think they just deliberately jumped on the bandwagon there, you know, and called it dark energy. They should have called it something else. It could be quintessence. That would be good. I think that was oh quick. yeah, that that make Alan more happy. He'd be like, he'd like to have the quintessence back. But originally, uh, so dark came from the French, right? So it was originally a label. I can't remember who it was, but it was called like matière obscure. So it was like obscured matter. And then it was a really bad translation into English that made it dark matter. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Zvicky was presumably Zvicky was was he writing Something in like that? Possibly. I'm not sure it was Zvicky. Was was he Swiss Zvicky? So it could have been French. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah Mathieu Obscure, which sounds so much better than Dark Matter. Right, we should just start using the French. I mean, we've done yeah. it with other things, haven't we? I mean, why not? Yeah. Tragically, it appears we're approaching a time where that's going to be happening less and less. Uh, so uh, now there's so, a question. Uh, now there's a question from uh, Tamsin Becky, uh, and uh, Tamsin was interested when she came to see the Universal tour that uh, did with Brian Cox, and Brian mm -hmm. used the term redshift quite a lot. And Tamsin's still uncertain really what redshift means. And it is, I think it's one of those problems, isn't it, sometimes, is people get so uh, kind of used to using it in their own world that they forget that redshift is something which can be quite alien when, when first approached. So um, she'd just like to have a, an explanation of what exactly we understand when redshift is being... Sure, yeah. So redshift is um, essentially a Doppler shift. So when you hear, you know, if you're stood on a motorway bridge and you hear cars screaming under you or when you hear an ambulance ambulance siren roar past and the sound changes pitch right uh it gets higher pitch as it comes towards you because the wave gets squashed because it's sort of being pushed on its way by something that's coming towards you and when it's moving away from you that object is sort of dragging the sound with it and so the wave like the wave gets dragged out and that's a lower pitch so that can happen to any form of wave that we come across it most with sound waves but it can happen to light too and light with longer sort of stretched out waves is redder in color and light with very squashed waves is very blue in colour. Now, John's already talked about the expansion of the universe. And so with the expansion of the universe, it means that as light travels to us through space, which is expanding, 
it gets dragged out and it gets dragged and pulled out into a longer wavelength so it gets redder. And so this is what we mean by red shift is that the light from distant things that we are seeing has been shifted to redder and redder, redder colors. Now, as astronomers, when we use it, we use it quite casually. We'll say, oh, this thing's got a redshift of 0.1 or this redshift, this thing's got a redshift of seven. And in my mind, at least, it's sort of how far away is that thing when we talk about a redshift? I think that's what we use it for most when we talk about it. Um, you know, sort of I say I study low redshift galaxies, which means I study nearby galaxies, whereas someone from my colleagues are like, oh, I'm a high redshift galaxies person, which means they're studying the faraway galaxies that look like tiny blobs that you can't tell the shape of them. And they look really boring in images, which is why I study the low redshift, because they look so pretty, because you can see them all their shape. Um, and so that's what we mean. And and really, this idea of redshift in, in, in terms of distance comes from this idea that the universe is expanding. It comes from um, Hubble and Lemaitre first studying this expansion of the universe and noticing that if you could measure the distance to something through, you know, how bright is that star compared to how bright we know it should be if it was here. The same thing you do when you cross a road, right? You look in the dark anyway. You look and you go, oh, that car's headlights don't look as bright, so it's further away kind of thing, or it's smaller or whatever. We do the same thing. You get a distance, and then you measure the speed it's moving away from you at. It's redshift. And you say, oh, okay, I can I can uh, link those two properties, right? I can link the redshift it's at and its distance. But really, to do that, you need to know how fast the universe is expanding, right? So it's a funny thing that in our head it means distance, when in actually it's a speed in a way. But you can link those two things together. So if you ever hear anyone saying, oh, high redshift, low redshift, or this thing's at this redshift, we're basically saying the bigger the number, the further away it is. Brilliant. Thank you. I hope that helps, Thank Samson. You. I hope that helps, Samson. Um, now, if question that, about phone for you, Ellie. Oh, sorry, John. I was saying, if the car's headlights are blue, then it's probably coming too fast, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was still my favourite joke we've ever had on Monkey Cage, was an introduction involving where an idea of when Brian was a Northern Club um, physicist and he used to have to come on stage and go, now, a couple of the jokes tonight are going to be a bit blue, but it's only because they're travelling towards you. Um, the uh, uh, Now, this is a question about foam. Helen, uh, we haven't had one about foam for a while. We've had a lot more questions about foam. Um, very faddy, isn't it? Uh, and this is from Doug. Doug would like to know, is it possible to predict how long foam can maintain its shape based on the amount of gas present? And if so, could we manufacture foam that maintains the property of foam but is more rigid or stiff over an infinite period? Uh, well, the answer to the second bit is that we already do. So foam, what we're talking about here is lots of bubbles that are kind of joined together. And... Um, there are you can basically make a foam in either a solid or a liquid so the sorts of foams i come across uh you know you have soap bubbles are the obvious thing you get a bubble it's got a coating that helps it keep its shape um so that will keep their shape for a while eventually the liquid inside the two uh surfactant layers will drain away and that's what determines the length of the foam it's it's basically that if you have a liquid foam the liquid in between your inner and outer layers of every bubble will gradually drain and as soon as it gets too thin so the outer and inner bits of your bubble touch then it pops and so that's what determines the um how long your foam lasts so there are things that so i actually spend a lot of time thinking about foam on the surface of the ocean um there are some things that make foam last longer uh, tiny particles so in the food industry they add nanoparticles not 
particularly nasty ones normally. Just it's just a word for very small things. So solid, tiny solid particles help stabilize foams, and so um, they're used quite commonly in mousses and things like that. So you have extra particle. You have your surfactant, which is like your soap, does that job. Um, you add particles, and you have something that's much much more stable. And in fact, in the ocean, I think the particles are really important in stabilizing bubbles. But you can get solid foams as well. And so that's you know if you're sitting on a cushion right now, you are probably if it's an artificial one uh like if it's a polymer rather than a feathers it will be a solid foam so we can make foams that last for a very very long time uh like all those horrible um expanded polystyrene you know those little white things that used to come in packaging that that is a solid foam and those do last for a very long time so so yes you can use foams in lots of interesting ways but in it, they do already last for long periods of time and there are lots of ways to predict how long they last yes brilliant thank you i hope that helped doug and uh this now a uh, question from live chat uh, i'll start with you on this one becky this is uh, from just a fangirl and uh would like to know what is the difference between an astronomer and an astrophysicist and i will throw that in as well and add cosmologist because sure. sometimes, so, so, so astronomer, astrophysicist, cosmologist. All right, cool. So an astronomer is someone who uses telescopes or their eyes or binoculars, whatever it is, to look at the sky and record what they see. So, you know, anyone who goes out in the, at night and with a, you know, just looks at the sky is technically an astronomer, right? But a professional astronomer is someone who does it for their job, right? They observe the night sky, record what they see, take data, like whether it's an image or whatever. An astrophysicist is then someone who uses that data to do science and so says what is this image showing me and i have a hypothesis i want to test about maybe you know how fast the galaxy is rotating whatever it is as john was talking about before whether they could you know fly apart if there was no dark matter and you test it against that image there are i for example am both i am an astronomer who goes to telescopes and then i'm also an astrophysicist because i use that data to do science with. I have friends though that are astrophysicists that don't go to telescopes because what they do is run simulations instead. So it's someone who's actually doing the physics and doing the science and they don't necessarily do the astronomy themselves. A cosmologist is just a type of astrophysicist and I don't know why they insist on having their own name, <laughs> but they do. <laughs> and so if you're a cosmologist, you're also an astrophysicist. A cosmologist is someone who um, deals with what happened for example at the beginning of the universe so like with the big bang and then how it's evolved since so for example trying to measure the properties of the entire universe and figuring out what that means for how it started and how it might end as well so they're very much sort of the big picture kind of people rather than someone like myself who studies galaxies or someone who studies planets or stars specifically they look at the very big picture stuff cosmologists Brilliant. Uh, now, John, a question now, for you. John, a question for you uh, from Peter, who would like to know about the possibility of significant reduction in energy and resource use in particle physics experiments and f facilities. Is such a thing possible in our current imaginings? Right. right. Um, reduction, yes, in the sense that you can do, you'll do more with with the same, or you know, the amount of physics you get, if you like, per per resource expense has increased all the time as we get smarter and we get better technologies and there's a sort of virtuous circle of, of new science helping the technology improve and then the technology helping the new science and so on. So that, you know, CERN is a, an example of how that goes. Um, the, um, but, but I think it, it's in terms of high energy physics where you really want the high energy collisions, that's not going to ever really help you get make it smaller so you know we're proposing bigger bigger colliders now 
they they're, they're more efficient but they're still bigger so they're still taking more resource so in in the sense of kind of the brute force going to high energies and high energies are particularly fruitful because the energy is essentially the resolution so it, it allows you to study nature at the smallest distance scales that is dictated by the amount of energy you can fling in and in the end the energy is intrinsic to that and physics isn't going to let you get away with doing it with less energy in that sense there is some very cool physics you can do for instance with large-scale quantum systems um, there's a whole bunch of research going on now about doing really small-scale things even gravitational wave detection and some particle physics experiments using using the fact that we understand quantum mechanics better and we can do more quantum engineering almost with it now to build detectors so there are avenues other than the brute force going to high energy but i think the high energy thing will always be valuable and will always require the energy unfortunately by the way if i can just out peter i know that he's a head of physics at queen mary university <laughs> London. so so he really ought to know the answer to that one himself but there we go that's uh, John, isn't there something about magnets being the, one of the really energy intensive like super cooling the magnets and if you could get presumably if you could get away without super cooled magnets you could use a lot less energy because you wouldn't have to have these enormous cooling systems absolutely um so one of the proposals already by the way superconductors in, in even even cryogenic superconductors was already a big win because you're not dissipating energy and resistance all the time the large hadron collider already exploits that we have big cryogenic um, superconducting magnets but yes certainly for the next round of the next generation of proposals for accelerators high temperature superconductivity could be one of the big wins it could help us reduce the cost and also the, the you know we're talking about 100 kilometers of, of high temperature superconducting magnets if you learn how to industrialize and standardize production of those things on that scale no one's done that yet that could be one of the big spin-offs of the next generation of colliders actually so it could again part of this hopefully virtuous circle where you might get a big technological leap forward that helps a lot more than just particle physics but it would also help particle physics at the same time that's made me think of a question john is there like an equivalent for more for particle colliders like uh, is there a limit that we're going to hit it's it's not a hard limit but the 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 you, in the end right you're limited by synchrotron radiation so um for electrons we've probably already hit that limit or we're very close to it that uh, eventually they as you turn around the corner they lose they they lose energy via electromagnetic radiation and that limit that's what limits those so the radius of curvature plus the the um plus the synchrotron loss and with a heavier particle it's the bending power of the magnets mm -hmm. so it's very hard to put your finger on it and go this is the hard limit but you know that it's got to break at some point and it's a matter of how how mm -hmm. far can you push it because these things are going like the, the synchrotron radiation is going like the power of four so you you know you have to it, you, you have to you would like something like moore's law uh, but like moore's law it will break down eventually because there's a there is a limit to how much energy you can pump in so even if you imagine the most efficient um the you know the absolute best magnets like helen was saying high, high temperature superconducting and everything in the end even with protons you'll get synchrotron radiation and <laughs> limit you in the end uh, so so i think um the i think we know that it will have to stop at some point and the argument is um, how smart can we be and how long can we postpone that point I think. Mm. that's so funny because synchrotron radiation to see supermassive black holes so i'm like 
big up synchrotron radiation but you're like no <laughs> i mean even like the diamond the diamond the diamond light source at harwell for instance they build it so that it does more sync they even wiggle the electrons so that you get more synchrotron radiation and everything we're trying to do at cern or in a, in a collider is to minimize it and there you go You've got to stop that wiggling of electrons. Ridiculous, isn't it? The, uh, now this question, question for Helen, Helen uh, cause it's about bubbles and it is, uh, this is from Naz. Naz would like to know why isn't the color refracted off the surface of a bubble more regular, like a rainbow, since it's a spherical object. Is it to do with the amount of soap that makes up the bubble? Uh, no, it's not to do with the amount it's of soap. to do with the thickness of the film. So, um, when you have a soap bubble, uh, what's that? It's nothing to do with the surface, actually. You could make that soap bubble out of quite a lot of things. What's going on is that, um, You've got a very thin film that's basically got an outside and an inside, if this is the curved bit of your bubble. And light comes in and it can bounce inside there before it goes back out again. So what's happening is that, um, I, I this is where I need a blackboard, but I'm not going to get... You can have light that bounces off that top surface or you can have light that goes into the top surface off the bottom one and comes back out. And so that thickness determines how much the those two rays mismatch. Um, when they come out and it's the mismatch that determines the color because if they reinforce each other that that gives you a very strong color if they cancel each other out you get very little color and it, um so so the so the bubble itself uh, doesn't have very much to do with it it's all about that thin layer and actually there is there's some it really one of the things i learned you know as a physicist you just take it for granted i'm just going to reach up and get something Hang on a sec um so when i this is the this is not a plug it's about this picture so this is the the soap bubble on the front of a book about bubbles i wrote um when the when the artist first wrote first drew that he drew rainbow colors and i said but bubbles don't soap bubbles don't have rainbow colors what are you doing and he was like oh i thought they did and of course to a physicist that that's that's it's really interesting that it's one of those misconceptions that we just take for granted so there's actually a very narrow range of colors that you can get on the bubble and they're mostly pinks and greens and yellows and blues so we got them right in the end so they're these colors right this looks familiar um there's still a few that they're not in the right ratio here um but because you can you'll never get red for example you can only get a certain number of um combinations of colors from this reflection process so uh so you will never get a rainbow in a bubble because you can't get the right combination of wavelengths to separate out every wavelength separately because with some of them if you get one you'll also get another that's why pink's really common um and that's quite a complicated answer to that question but um it's nothing to do with the bubble itself it's just to do with the reflection inside this inner layer um of the wall of the bubble bubble now, this is uh, this from Alex L uh, Luton, uh, who would like to know, why is the universe expanding faster, Becky? So this is uh, this brings us back to some things we've kind of started talking about there. Uh, Alex obviously says, I would assume that uh, expand fast after the Big Bang and then start slowing down. And of course, in the last 40 years, the, you know, the, the, this is one of the things, isn't it? When you read books, if you go back over a period of time, you see so many different concepts. Yeah, I can't. and it's funny, we don't really know essentially why the universe is accelerating expanding. Uh, the reason it's accelerating expanding is because dark energy exists, is all I can tell you. But what is dark energy? We don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very circular thing. It's like, why is the universe accelerating expanding? Because dark energy. What's causing the acceleration expansion? Because of dark energy. <laughs> what is dark energy? We don't know. Um, and so it's all it's all to do with what the balance of um, so if you have an energy budget at the start of the Big Bang, how much of that energy budget goes into making normal matter, how much goes into dark matter and how much goes into this dark energy business. Um, and at the minute, we think that's around sort of like 70 percent 
has gone into dark energy. And so there's a lot of people who are trying to drill those numbers down to incredibly, incredibly precise. I'm talking like five decimal places in terms of like a, you know, a fraction of like how much has gone into each amount. Because what they're trying to work out is what will happen. Will it keep expanding forever, accelerating as it goes? Will it eventually hit, you know, an, a, what we call an equilibrium where it's just a steady, uh, you know, size, the universe, and it's not expanding anymore? Or will it actually reverse and will it start contracting again? and come back down into sort of the opposite of a big bang, a big crunch. And so depending how much energy from the big bang's energy budget has gone into this mysterious dark energy that we don't understand, will eventually tell us what is going to happen to the universe. Um, but we don't, our precision is not quite there to know. We're sort of pretty certain that it will, uh, I think it's just going to expand, I can't remember, is it the flat universe means that it also... Will it just reach an equilibrium? Can you remember, John, which way round that is? I think, yeah, it'll one ex one exponentially stop. If it's yeah, it will just get slower and slower and slower and slower, expanding, but never quite stop. But that means it has to turn around because at the moment it's it's, it's increasing. Yeah. So I I, th I thought at the moment, isn't it looking like it's energy dominated and it will actually all just fly apart in the end into tiny bits? Well, that was that sort of. Uh, conclusion back around about this time last year there was a paper that came out called the crisis in cosmology that said actually we don't really know and be it, that it will just fly apart forever and everything will get in, much further apart until our night sky is practically dark um which is a worrying worrying thought and it's one of these things like i said at the beginning it's one of the things we don't know still so you can ask the question but you know these are the questions that are being asked you know in universities themselves and are being researched right now and there's lots of people that are coming up with very clever ways of trying to figure that out new and different ways all the time because the ways that we've been doing it so far haven't been giving us quite the precision we need to say for sure one way or the other yeah when you say a worry say a worrying thought there are people who genuinely worry about these things yeah not in an academic way but in a kind of oh my god am i going to fly apart next week you're not right. It's we're talking billions and billions of years, but so it's nothing to actually worry about unless you actually really care about what's going on in the universe around you from a somewhat scientific academic point of view. I picked up on that as well because by the time, time any of this happens, the sun will have turned into you know the sun will have overtaken, expanded to overtake the earth. There'll be nothing left here anyway, and so it was, it was an interesting choice of word. I'm sure someone is worrying about it. Yeah, that is, yeah. that is an interesting because that comes out and you mentioned it actually uh, in I think it was in your in, in your last book as far as I remember, John, where you talk about Dirac saying that you know for him. He was had totally accepted the fact that he would end. There would be no more Dirac and there would be no more Earth at a point and all of those things. But when he thought about the end of the universe, that there would be nothing that could look at his works or indeed the works of physics. That was the bit where the anxiety came in. So it's yeah. not on the parochial, your own end of existence. It's yeah. the fact that there would be nothing, no record of any idea and nothing to exist that would have an interest in any record yeah, yeah. i think that's why i said a worrying thought night like, sky going dark because i don't care if i'm not here or whatever but the idea that the you know the, the beauty of the night sky and all the stars in it that you get so much wonder from just wouldn't be there anymore it's just like oh i mean in billions of years time sure but like i'm still a bit it's, like, almost, oh. it's, it's probably trillions isn't it i mean we're talking oh, gosh, about yeah it'd be so long uh, in the future because that's, I mean, that fascinates me. I ask all of you, but you know, some of the versions, you know, some of the versions that I've read are basically you end up with a universe where everything is spread so thinly that there are no more events. And once you mm -hmm. have no more events, then you have no more time. Now that thing without events, there isn't time either. 
And that seems to be things that I've heard people talk about. Oh, because so, there's nothing to mark the passing of time. Because there's no event. passing of anything. Yeah. There's just, and that, that, that's a fascinating thing. There's nothing to change. That's right. So, mm. yeah. It's yeah. like lockdown. <laughs> now, uh, this is, who, oh, I've not asked, I haven't I actually, I was trying to remember who I asked that question to first of all. So, John, I'm going to throw a question to you. This is from Emma Bale, and this is about uh, the Higgs boson. So, if the Higgs boson uh, gives things mass, what gives the Higgs ITS mass? What is ITS, first of all? It's mass. It's mass. Oh, right. It's been put down as I-T-S. There we are. Right. Right. Isn't Good. that I think that's probably just caps lock on to say it's yeah, I presume that's just, yeah, that must be it. I've been it's looking at it going, what is I-T-S? <laughs> what is the Higgs I-T-S? It was a stress. Like, what's its mass? It was a very bright right. mass, right? <laughs> I was thinking it, Robin. The it's because it's come out twice, because I've actually had it. It's both been sent in in advance. And, and because both times it's caps lock, I've just presumed, because my presumption is that I don't know most physics terminology, I presumed there was something in the Higgs. Like having read your book and two other books on the Higgs, I hadn't covered the ITS area yet. We just missed a great chance to start a conspiracy theory, though. Like, really? We Why are they hiding? We haven't missed it yet. <laughs> Why is no one talking about the ITS? Is it partly because now we're leaving Europe, the Europeans who are involved in are keeping the ITS secret? How is that going to affect uh, British fishing? <laughs> the I stands for Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably the Terrapin group as well of the, uh, um, yeah. Should I answer the question? Yeah, go on. <laughs> itself, it, it, the Higgs itself gives itself, it has a self-interaction. And this is one of the reasons why it's so special, actually, because it is what we call a scalar particle, which is um, has no spin or anything, and it has no charge. It can actually have self-interactions of a particular kind that also allow it to give itself mass as well as everything else. So... So that it's a kind of closed system. It's not you don't need it doesn't go on forever. You know, you, you invent a particle to give the others mass and then you need a new particle to give it mass. It's smarter than that. It closes itself off. It gives itself mass as well. There are other issues with it that mean it might not be the final. It probably isn't the final story. But at, at least in terms of giving the Higgs itself mass, um, it can do the job. Brilliant. Uh, you uh, mentioned the uh, Illuminati there, John. You know, my YouTube like avatar like is my eye. You know, yeah. like stars in her eyes. And I was like, I don't just want stars in my eyes. I want a whole galaxy in my eye. So like, my avatar is like a galaxy over my iris. And I just thought it was really cool. And then in the early days of my YouTube, I had all these people commenting like, look at her avatar. It's an eye. She must be part of the Illuminati. And I was like, no. You should, if you've not seen it, the uh, the documentary that was a Storyville documentary by the BBC on the Pepe the Frog. So I don't know if any of you have seen that yet. You know, we've seen that yet. You know, which became a symbol yeah. on the kind of 4chan and 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 used by the by the hard right about the cartoonist who just did a funny little frog having a wee with his trousers and pants down saying you know feels good i think or whatever it was and somehow and then it's all about him trying to reclaim it and you kind of want to go i think you're gonna to have to give this up now yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting about how how these things are kind of you know born and grow and and, and whatever this is uh becky if you duncan would like to know uh saw that the wow signal was back in the news this week uh, mm. i'm almost certainly missing something but the news this week seemed to say it was generated by a comet but isn't yeah. that was also concluded in the 1970s. 
Yeah, it was concluded back in the 1970s, but I think it was sort of like a, we're pretty sure it's a comet. And I think someone's just looked at it again and, and with like modern techniques and confirmed. see the story myself. I just heard that it was in the news. But I love the wow signal. It's so cool. It's definitely one of those examples of all the times in history where we've immediately jumped to like aliens and little green men. Uh, you know, the wow signal, pulsars, even fast radio bursts, right? Which is the most recent thing in the past 10, 15 years or so. We've been like, is it aliens? And then we've been like, oh, it's probably magnetars. But like, it's just like human nature, right? To jump to it first. There's probably, you know, such a more of a mundane, uh, well, not really mundane because it is astrophysical at the end of the day, but there's much more like an ordinary explanation for it than aliens. It's almost like it's the lazy option to be like <gasps> aliens. And it's like, no, there's a physics explanation for it instead. Well, the comet is more exciting than a red dwarf garbage, dwarf garbage canister. I mean, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> I think also that it's nice to, you know, think of people like Seth Shostak you know who, who've been working on these things at SETI for years mm. and and I think most of the people I speak to who are involved in any of those things go we do the whole time find these signals and go we know it's not going to be we know it's not going to be yeah. but just every now and again because we so much want to make that connection I think it's nice to have it's a bit like writing a book and, go, and just briefly imagining yourself at the award ceremony holding the trophy you realize it may well not happen but it you, you know every now and again I like that you went for writing a book rather than writing a scientific paper and then being at the Nobel Prize ceremony like oh yeah I was at the WH Smith <laughs> Book Awards you know as I said before we started this I've still got 60,000 words to cut out of my book uh <laughs> the uh um so that's all I've got in my head this is uh Helen for you good news whale poo question in fact Stacey I apologize you sent this last week and uh, we didn't get round to it and uh, Stacey would just like to know can you Helen provide any update on uh, the whale poo book that you got for your birthday have you got any new information so far Oh, so I should probably say, I everyone seems to have forgotten, I, I can answer questions on things that aren't bubbles and whale poo, but I'm very happy to have questions on bubbles and whale poo. Um, so I think the book I was talking about was Ambergris, uh, and it was called Floating Gold. I can't, can't remember the author. Um, and I, I think what I said, I was talking last time about how Ambergris is this weird thing that basically comes from um, constipated whales. And uh, it's not a very nice thing for the whales. So the, the thing I can't remember what I talked about last time, but I recommend everyone to get the book. But I, the thing I did, didn't know that I don't mention last time was that there's basically a kind of um, ambergris mafia. So this is this kind of sort of very it's got a very distinctive smell it's gray green weird colors it washes up on beaches it's amazingly valuable it's still used in very posh perfumes uh, and it comes from a constipated whale and um there's apparently a sort of mini mafia around you know where you can collect it and they you know they keep an eye on each other's beaches and so they know when it washes up and when the tide's right and they get very protective about it apparently new zealand is the place where it, it gets most vicious so so i don't know but i think if you want to find out more about ambergris you're getting into a very murky world um because it seems that it's the uh, it's the ambergris you know the secretive world of the black market ambergris i don't know if it's even black market because it just washes up on beaches but um yes it's so so i think it's quite um i think you should step with care you know all that stuff about horses heads at the bottom of the bed you don't want a whale's head at the bottom of your bed and i think that might be what be coming if you do too much digging i hope the scientists get onto the case a bit more but even the scientists can't get this stuff to you know because it's all collected by these collectors who who are a bit territorial so yeah be be careful with this i wish we knew more about it but it's not actual whale poo actual actual whale poo floats for other reasons and that's a whole bigger area Seven Great. Times. Well, now you've opened yourself up for the questions next time now <laughs> on the other forms of floating poo. Um, I, have and... a, I have a link between penguin poo and astrophysics, by the way. 
Go on then. Oh, go on. So uh, we have some friends uh, in ecology in Oxford who were studying penguins, penguinologists down in Antarctica, and they had left camera traps all around to take images of penguin colonies. And they found that the penguins were arriving before they thought they did. They thought they waited until the snow had melted for the penguins to arrive, make their nests, uh, and then they would have their babies. But they found that the penguins were arriving when the snow was still there on the cameras, but they would poop everywhere which would heat up from the light of the sun melt the snow and then they would build their nests and so the penguinologists had to come to us and say hi we need to work out um the albedo of penguin poo to work out how much heat from the sun it actually absorbs and therefore how hot it would get to melt the snow so albedo is um the reflection of a surface like how much light does a surface reflect and, and how much of the sunlight does it actually absorb which is something that uh, astrophysicists study when they look at exoplanets they look at the albedo of, of a planet uh, to figure out how much sunlight it reflects and so they had to come to us and we had to think about the albedo of penguin poo which was a brilliant there's another brilliant paper on penguin poo for those who are not penguinologists who, who <laughs> which is about the pressure because if you've ever watched a penguin poo which is not very many people it is a projectile poo it is not a shy retiring activity and so there's this wonderful paper where they tried to work out the pressure inside because it's a it's a it's a bird right so it's got a, a cloaca it's got a single it's all together in the same pouch inside the bird to get squirted out and there's this amazing paper where they're trying to work out the pressure needed to squirt this stuff quite as far as it goes and by all accounts it's extremely stinky um, and there's a wonderful diagram of a paper in this paper of a penguin leaning forward slightly with its little um whatever the penguin equivalent of a bladder is and the pressure with this little i'll see if i can find it before next week it's really it's it's a very serious paper but how they wrote it without um just killing themselves laughing i have no idea but it's a lot of pressure it takes to eject penguin poo that's the important thing very good hydrodynamics and John, is it right that when the LHC closed down and there was a rumour for a while that it was because a sandwich had been dropped, it was actually because a guillemot had uh, got in there and excreted in the machine? I don't think so, no. <laughs> I just wanted to check it wasn't a guillemot excreting. That's the main I think, thing. I think that was genuinely a baguette. A baguette. There, was, there, was, there was the incident with the, with the weasel as well. But the, it was the baguette. It was, it was actually a baguette someone dropped on a transformer, if I remember rightly. So. Right, so yeah, the guillemot. Extra, I mean, the bird, it, is, up, Robin. it could have been, but it dropped a baguette. Well, let's, you know, well, as, as we know, obviously, Becky, the member of Illuminati, will know about the <laughs> Guillemot spies that she sent into the LHC. Um, thank you all very, very much for, for joining us. I, I was going to ask you, uh, I don't know if any of you have read The, the Janus Point by Julian Barber yet. Has any, any of you read that about the... OK, I'll ask you that next time. Uh, and a reminder that John's book, uh, Map of the Invisible, is out in paperback now. And uh, Becky's uh, book, Space, 10 Things You Should Know, uh, is out in hardback now. And uh, but, but all versions as well available uh, for Helen's book, uh, Storm in a Teacup, which I highly recommend. And um, we're, as I said, not back next week. And we're not back the week after, but before this... Ah, oh, there we are. We've got your book. There we go. Map of the Invisible. Uh, and... Um, so, uh, yeah, so the reason that we're not back next week is because we've got a huge amount of preparation for the show we're doing on the 12th through to Sunday the 13th, 24 hours uh, with scientists, with musicians, with comedians, with all manner of people. Go to the CosmicShambles.com site and you will find out. Uh, we've, we've announced now, as I said, about 120 guests and it really is fantastic. We've got a lot of uh, astronauts, amongst other things as well. And uh, also don't forget the uh, the new episode of Book Shambles, a very interesting book about the history of psychology, the great 
Pretender uh, by Susanna Cahalan. And uh, the latest episode of uh, An Uncanny Hour is about the brood. And uh, our next episode after that is going to be about uh, the great TV play Pender's Fen, and that's going to have Alan Moore and Stuart Lee, amongst others. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.